Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. We recently recorded upcoming bonus episodes about the Star Wars series Andor and our best and oddest memories of the video store era. You can find those soon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Our co-host Keith has been banished to an unnamed tourist city in Europe after a slight incident on the job here in the States, but the less said about that, the better. In his place at the pub, we have New York critic Sedant Adlaka. Sedant, how are you doing? We, we understand that you're like literally swimming up sea in a stream of sickness in order to be here with us. Well, I've been worse. Um, and there are worse <laughs> things to be doing while sick than uh, discussing the movies that we're about to talk about. That's really good philosophy. I'll have to keep that in mind uh, next time I'm sick. I'll, I'll call everybody on this podcast up and demand that they talk movies with me. <laughs> People are going to, I'm going to have to get subbed out when I'm sick. <laughs> I'm not talking through this. Forget it. I don't have that kind of dedication. So this week, we've got two films from British-born playwright, screenwriter, and director Martin McDonough, who's best known for his stories set in or around characters from his ancestral home of Ireland. Earlier this year, I saw McDonough at a live event, and someone asked him to recommend three great Irish movies, and he laughed, and he suggested that he could only come up with half of one, which was Lenny Abramson's 2007 film Garage. When one of the actors on stage with him suggested that The Snapper is a great Irish movie, he snorted and he said, no, it's not. And then they had like a little back and forth. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Before he finally just said, agree to disagree. Then he came up blank on any further titles in the name of good Irish movies, all of which kind of took me back a little bit because McDonough is pretty famous for being irascible. Like he's he's very well known for having told Sean Connery to F off. He did not use the diminutive at an awards dinner where Connery came up and took him to task for not saluting the queen. So it doesn't seem like coming up with great Irish movies was that hard an ask for somebody who's made Irish stories his entire career. Am I wrong here? Do, do you have favorites? Like, I'm not even necessarily talking about films just made by Irish people or made in Ireland, but like films set in Ireland or about Ireland. Do you have uh, favorites that you want to call out maybe for McDonough to go see? I mean, there was a very easy answer of three great Irish films and just say cartoon saloons like trilogy of <laughs> Irish folklore stories, uh, Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea and, and Wolf Walkers. I've made my love of Cartoon Saloon known on, on this podcast. I think we all like it and have talked about some of those films on here. Although actually, probably my favorite film of theirs is the one that's actually not set in Ireland, which is The Breadwinner. And I hope you get a chance to talk about that on the podcast at some point. But setting aside Cartoon Saloon, because I think maybe McDonough isn't necessarily an animation guy, my pick would be honestly, another film that he probably would not care for because it's a romantic drama. The 2015's uh, John Crowley film, Brooklyn, which, yes, it's called Brooklyn, and a large part of it is set in Brooklyn, but a large part of it is set in Ireland as well. And it is about an Irish character coming to Brooklyn and forging a life for herself there and then returning to her home and 
kind of finding herself and it changed in, in interesting ways. And uh, it's a longtime favorite of mine. Well, long time, the last seven years since it's been out. That would have been my pick. It's beautiful. Uh, I have to claim Neil Jordan here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actual Irish director, maker of many, many great films, Mona Lisa, Company of Wolves. The Crying Game, I think, would be the one most prominent here. The, uh, the Butcher Boy, I think, is one that, that is really, you know, if you want to talk about the most Irish of his films, that would probably be a pretty good choice. But The Crying Game actually came up for me pretty recently because this movie theater in Atlanta that I saw many art films at called The Terra is closing tonight, the night we are co- recording this podcast after 52 or 54 years in business, I saw, and The Crying Game was a film I saw there along with Dark Star Cowboy and Do the Right Thing and a lot of really major, major films. So uh, I have strong connections with that. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I think I think Neil Jordan just makes, uh, you know, literary uh, fil- films with like, like strong literary r- roots, but also um, that have their own kind of seductiveness on film. I think his films have a very uh, evocative atmospheric nature and an intelligence to them sort of a wry sense of humor as well that i really appreciate so uh, i'm just claiming his the whole filmography i'll I'll, I'll, I'll even take i'll even take the bad ones i'll take in dreams and i'll take high spirits i'll take the flops as well but uh i'll take them all what about you sadant well, since I can't say The Irishman, uh, I'm going to follow <laughs> Genevieve's lead and uh, mention sort of a trilogy. It's not really a trilogy, more of a spiritual one. Uh, three films directed by Jim Sheridan and starring Daniel Day-Lewis. My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father, and probably my favorite among them is actually the one that gets talked the least about, which is The Boxer, in which Daniel Day-Lewis plays a former IRA member named Danny Flynn, who's released from prison and gets in the ring. And if you've seen Raging Bull, think of someone who does the exact opposite of everything Scorsese does in that movie (laughs) and does it in a very strange and interesting way. And it's also an uncharacteristically restrained performance by Day-Lewis, which is something that has really stuck with me. I haven't seen the movie in about 15 years. It was during a time when I was, when I would fixate on a particular actor and watch the entire filmography. And uh, this is one that really stood out to me as what I would call a top-tier Daniel Day-Lewis performance, despite his shoutier ones. I mean, speaking of Jim Sheridan, one of my all-time favorite movies, period, is Into the West, directed by Mike Newell and written, uh, co-written at least by Jim Sheridan. It's uh, yet another movie, so, so many movies made about or around Ireland in some way touch on myth in the same kind of ways the cartoon saloon movies do. And Newell's Into the West and John Sale's Secret of Rowan Inish both tap very much into uh, that, that kind of mythology. And look at how the relationship between sort of children and folklore and, and tradition and history is very different from the way adults look at it and relate to it. And both of those movies are, are kind of expressly about how adults kind of born down under the trials of life that are so often the, the focus of Irish film. It's just very different from the way their children experience the world and particularly experience Ireland and, and its like longstanding lore and tradition of storytelling. 
Those two in particular really stand out for me. I suspect that they would be too sentimental for McDonough. I, I don't think for a moment, despite my crack, that he hasn't seen any of these movies. I think that his his particular tastes are maybe not keyed toward them, or maybe just as somebody that's coming out of the tradition that he's coming out of, doesn't think that any of these movies should be able to stand in for a, a country that he identifies with so strongly, which, you know, I can see that. I'm sure if called upon on the spot, while standing on a stage in front of hundreds of people, I was told to name like three great American movies. I would probably stammer. Whereas if uh, sitting in at home in front of a computer and asked the same question, I'd have to make a list of 100 and then like move on to some other project before it took over. Just say, you know, American Graffiti, American Beauty, uh, <laughs> American Honey, American Gigolo, uh, American Gigolo. Yes, yeah, see, American see Wolf the- in London. That's more of a British film. <laughs> No, no, no. With American an, Werewolf John in London. John Lannis directs. Officially counts. You're, you're right. I, I I, don't even have to work at it. I just can Google American the word American. Paris. So uh, American I'll be back in a minute. I'm going to go um, pitch this to my editor as my next assignment. Uh, in the meantime, Genevieve, can you tell us about the pairing we're going to be talking about for the next two episodes? Sure. Martin McDonough made his first film in 2008 with the dark, violent comedy in Bruges, but he came to the screen after more than a decade of writing award-winning plays about the topics that in Bruges fans will find familiar. Accidental and deliberate murder, people questioning their faith and morality and how the two intertwine, deliberate cruelty and complicated ethical codes, the relationship between people and animals, and a lot more. In Bruges may be a flashier, more Tarantino-esque expression of his sensibility, but it was already fully developed by the time he got to the screen. His latest film, The Banshees of Inishirin, stars Brendan Gleeson as a reclusive musician on a remote Irish island in the early 1900s, and Colin Farrell as the longtime friend he's decided he's done with. We thought about various pairings for that film, involving other dissolved friendships or relationships, but in the end, it seemed like it had the most in common within Bruges itself. Another film starring Farrell and Gleeson in a close friendship that's come close to the end of its road. Banshees acts as a reunion for the three men, but it's also an interesting expression of similar themes and ideas that play out in a completely different way. So it's kind of a triumvirate double feature of Irishmen having platonic breakups in very wordy ways in very different but equally picturesque settings. We hope you'll join us as we navigate two sets of friends becoming two pairs of enemies, or at least walking through the negotiations that might lead them there if things go poorly. What is it you've done, Raymond? Murder, father. Why did you murder someone, Raymond? For money. Who did you murder for money, Raymond? You, father. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. Ray, you're about the worst tourist in the whole world. If I'd gone up on a farm and was retarded, Bruges might impress me, but I didn't, so it doesn't. She ain't my girlfriend. She's a prostitute. Didn't know there were any prostitutes in Bruges. Just have to look in the right places. Brothels are good. An Uzi. I'm not from South Central Los Angeles. I want a normal gun for a normal person. Maybe that's what hell is. The entire rest of eternity spent in Bruges. In the usual biopic way of narrowing somebody's career down to one formative moment or concept, because it makes for such efficient and focused storytelling, 
It's pretty tempting to narrow Martin McDonough's work down to a comment he made in a past interview about his formative years and how his political and musical tastes dovetailed with each other. Born in London and raised in England, McDonough's from an Irish family, and he frequently spent summers in Ireland during some of the most violent exchanges in the religious and political conflict so often euphemistically referred to as the Troubles. Here's a bit from a 2006 piece in The New Yorker, looking at McDonough's award-winning plays about Ireland a few years before his first movie hit theaters. Quote, The conflict in Northern Ireland entered its bloodiest phase during McDonough's childhood, and though his parents were sympathetic to the Catholic nationalist side, he was deeply suspicious of the terror campaign of the Irish Republican Army and of the sentimental cult surrounding the men who died for the cause. Quote, Even from an early age, I was trying to think about all that stuff myself, he said. I was always coming from a left-wing or pacifist or anarchist angle that started with punk and which was against all nationalisms, unquote. While in later interviews, McDonough would describe his childhood love of the Clash and the Pogues as formative, he would also frequently point out that it's seen more in his writing and his worldview than in the actual music in his movies. His sensibility has always been pretty punk, aggressive and anarchistic, anti-establishment, but joyful and gleeful, and pretty often violent in its expression. That certainly shows in his first movie, 2008's In Bruges, a movie about two Irish hitmen who retreat to the well-preserved medieval town of Bruges after an assassination gone wrong in London. Ray, played by Colin Farrell, is an impatient young idiot who's easily bored unless he's drinking, drugging, having sex, fighting, or actively on his way toward one or more of those things. His older mentor, Ken, played by Brendan Gleeson, is more sedate and philosophical and more interested in sightseeing and reading up on the town. Two occupations that don't seem to bore Ray so much as they actually physically distress him. Through a series of revelations unfolding over time, it emerges that Ray botched his first hit and that Ken is expected to pull an of mice and men move and put his clumsy young protege down. It feels for a moment like McDonough might spend the rest of the movie on Ken navigating that choice or might make a move and put the two men into conflict for the rest of the story. But McDonough has something far more comic and heightened in mind, and the story rushes past that reveal quickly and on to incident after unexpected incident as everyone involved makes quick choices with big consequences. There's certainly a punk rock mentality to a lot of In Bruges, given its staccato rhythms, its quick impatient leaps from one development to the next, its deep love of profanity, its dismissal of sentiment, even as it's revealing a deep well of camaraderie and loyalty, and the frustrated anger bubbling under the surface of it all. There's certainly a feeling to it that institutions aren't to be trusted, that youth and speed and pleasure are the important bits in life, and that we're all likely to die unexpectedly before our time anyway, so we should wring all the fun out of life that we can manage. Traces of that punk mentality extend to a lot of McDonough's work, even as he's visibly maturing as a filmmaker, slowing down those amped-up rhythms, and visibly easing more towards the Ken philosophy of life than the Ray side. His 2012 movie Seven Psychopaths feels even more heavily indebted to Guy Ritchie than In Bruges does, which is saying something. But by the time of 2017's Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, he was already stretching toward richer characters and quieter moments, even as he pointedly maintained his distrust of the Catholic Church, of law enforcement and government, and of controlling forces in general. You can still feel the punk sneer at work in Banshees of Inishirin, but it's a more sedate sneer. And increasingly, he's taking in the community around his characters as part of the family that's meaningful to them, rather than focusing on them as isolated and singular, marching aggressively through the world in an every-man-for-himself pattern that allows for friendship, but only so much trust. You aren't going to find a lot of actual punk on the soundtrack for In Bruges. There's a score by Carter Burwell, and songs by Regina Spector, Towns Van Zant, and, um, well, Schubert. The Clash is nowhere to be heard. 
but they can still be felt in Ray's restless frustration, his search for meaning, his inability to sit still, and the way he lives out an ethos that isn't just self-centered pleasure-seeking. He's casually homophobic, and he's indifferent to how his words land on other people. He isn't kind, and he isn't a sensitive soul. But he believes other people have as much right to freedom as he has, especially women and children. You wouldn't necessarily want to be his friend or between him and a goal, but it'd probably be a lot of fun to be next to him at a Pogues concert, dancing your face off and thinking more about the music than about the next moment down the line. I quite like this one. All the rest are rubbish by spastics, but this one's quite good. What's it all about then? Judgment Day, you know? Oh, yeah. What's that, then? Well, it's, you know, the final day on Earth. When mankind will be judged for all the crimes they've committed and, and that. Oh. And see who gets into heaven and who gets into hell and all that. Yeah. yeah. What's the other place? Purgatory. Purgatory. Purgatory's... Kind of like the in-betweeny one. You weren't really shit, but you weren't all that great either. Like Tottenham. Do you believe in all that stuff, Ken? Uh, Tottenham? The Last Judgment and the afterlife. And guilt and sins and hell and all that. Um... So we'll start here where we so often start, which is, did you see In Bruges back in the day, back when it came out? And whether you did or not, how do you feel that it plays today? So now we always try to start with a guest here. What do you what do you think? So I discovered it at a key time in what I would call my cinematic development. I was 16 when it came out and still discovering the various things that cinema was capable of. And to me, it answered a very key question, which is, what if Guy Ritchie could make something soft and sentimental? <laughs> and it it did indeed open up a sort of new world for me, a new way of thinking about the ways that films could reflect on their themes. Because while it certainly isn't alone in what it does, it was one of the first films that I remember seeing at the age of 16 that created something out of nothing. It was sort of alchemic in that sense. And the notes of Cordoba Will's score still stick with me today. I rewatched the film recently. It was my first time doing so in about 14 years. And nothing about the film has changed, but so much when it comes to my understanding of the world has changed that it almost hit me even more forcefully. Of course, in the intervening years between 16 and 30, which is what I am today, you tend to think a lot more about mortality. And In Bruges is sort of the perfect microcosm of some of those thoughts, because Colin Farrell's character is forced to think about death up close in a multitude of ways, whether it's the deaths that he has caused or the end of his own life, whether it comes at his hand or someone else's. And Bruges seems almost like the perfect location for him to have some of those thoughts because of its architecture, because of its spiritual connotations. And I felt the film much more than I did the first time I saw it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of undergoes a little bit of a shift. There's a little kind of a very kind of subtle gear shift where it becomes a little bit more 
than what you think it might be. Um, I think my reaction to it at the time was like, finally, fi- finally, I-, I was thinking more of Tarantino than Guy Ritchie, or, or and I was thinking of David Mamet too, and, um, and McDonough's love of language and the, the rhythm of speech. But what's surprising is that is that you do get all of this patter, right? A lot of a lot of sort of the dead talk that you see in in Pulp Fiction between between hitmen that that sort of comes up, and so many movies try to imitate that and and, and failed throughout the uh, throughout the nineties, and finally McDonough comes along and gets it right. But then that shift happens. The shift, of course, happens when Ken is given the hit on his friend and uh, and doesn't go through with it because he's, he, is, he sees his friends in a lot of pain and it kind of sh- the, the movie kind of shifts dramatically from there without losing its sense of fun. It is still wall to wall an incredibly entertaining and funny movie. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it just I don't know. It's a pleasure to watch, but it also it, it does have a lot of interesting uh, sort of undercurrents to it which is what you i mean what, what more can you kind of ask for from an entertainment than that yeah i think my experience was was maybe a little similar to yours sedans and I, I i did see it when it came out and like i have fond memories of it but not necessarily strong memories of it like when we picked it to do with this i had to think like i had to remind myself of the plot because i honestly like my feeling of this film is not necessarily what happens. It's just like being there in those conversations and honestly, like the setting, like I think like this film has such a strong sense of place. Like I did not even know what Bruges was before seeing this film. Like my entire notion of the city is this film basically. So it's one of those movies that like when I'm watching it, I feel very immersed in it. I feel like the, you know, we've, we've already talked about sort of like the back and forth of the dialogue, just being so kind of beguiling the, the setting being so beguiling. But the narrative itself, I think maybe just because I was much younger when I saw it, it didn't really stick with me in any meaningful way. So revisiting it this time, a little older, a little more well-versed in <laughs> some of the, the themes, it hit me harder this time. I still don't know if it's like necessarily a film like an all-timer for me. It's just sort of not necessarily my particular niche of film, but it's one that I like respect and like I say in the moment really enjoy being in the film. This was a movie I was over the moon for when it came out in uh, 2008. I reviewed it for the AV club. Um, I gave it an A. I like ranted uh, basically like reading, reading my review of that. It's just such full bore enthusiasm. And I had a much more measured response this time out, maybe because I know the beats. I know I know the surprises. And maybe because I've seen so many films since then that feel in some way indebted either to this movie or to the, you know, Quentin Tarantino slash Guy Ritchie like influences that helped shape this film. But this time around, I think I was most struck by a lot of what Sadat's talking about, just in terms of the philosophy behind it. You know, the tension between Ray and Ken isn't just a tension of age and to some degree philosophy. It's just a complete tension of experience and uh, focus and, and interest and art and personality. And the fact that they're both 
kind of on the edge of death throughout various points of this movie and approaching it in such different ways is really key to that. Like they're approaching life very differently and then they approach death very differently. And that just strikes me as a really interesting dichotomy. I certainly took like the nonstop homophobic jabs very differently <laughs> this time around than I did back in 2008. Uh, I took a lot of the language. I I swear I am becoming a little bit of an old lady fuddy-duddy where I, I sometimes I listen to a movie like this and I'm just like, do you have to swear so much? <laughs> you know, the, the, the place of, you know, that, that Mamedian dialogue that's like 50% profanity just lands very different for me these days. Like it, it seems much more expressive and evocative of like a point of view and particularly a youthful point of view than it seems like just punctuation the way it maybe seemed for me back in 2008. But I'm in the same place as Genevieve, like this movie kind of opened up a setting that I'd never seen before on film that I'd never really thought about and then just kind of explores what it means philosophically to be in this setting and how that affects, you know, two people's lives. And I think that's just a really interesting choice to have a story this busy and this occupied with incident. Also, just being able to take time for big moral questions, big ethical questions, and then just basic questions of, you know, geography and approach to life. There's there's a lot going on in this movie. Well, I mean, the, the setting sort of sets off the dynamic between these two characters. I mean, for one, which is fundamentally comic, you know, with, you know, Ken being perfectly content to be there for as long as they need to be there and to go sightseeing like the other tourists and, and, you know, and being in this kind of old place that's, that may be for other sort of, you know, buddy duddies or people who are a little more settled in their, in their life, not, not for uh, a young person. Uh, and then you have, uh, then you have Ray who, who completely lacks, any curiosity at all and is it, it was good this is hell hell for him to even be there it's a wonderful kind of contrast the city is ends up being kind of revealing of, of character and it get, on both a comic level and then and then later on on a dramatic level and a thematic level multiple times we're told it's you know a, a medieval city and there is lots of sort of catholic imagery and like you know, there's, a, of course, the Bosch painting uh, scene, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of ideas about, you know, judgment and morality woven into this, that the setting kind of amplifies through its, you know, link to that era. And you can kind of defy the quaintness of it, too, as a, as a filmmaker. And I guess we'll get into that with in a Sheeran, too, where it's just like you have this setting that is so beautiful and touristy and quaint, you know, and it's Christmas time and all that. And it's in this type of environment that McDonough sort of explodes with violence and, and mayhem. It's just a nice, it pops. Well, what do you all think about the structure here? There's kind of just a series of reveals where you you start off really very much in media res and then rush through a series of reveals that lead to developments that lead to just kind of like big changes in the story. How does it all play out for you? Uh, watching it this time, I was really struck by just one of the very first scenes where they're they're checking into the hotel and Ray is already just complaining at, at, a, at a high pitch and <laughs> Ken, he alludes to the incident, but he doesn't 
say say what it is he's he's he basically says like you know you know why we're, why we're here and just the look on kyle and Farrell's face like it's just like immediate like hang dog like why'd you have to say that <laughs> you, you know and, and it's funny you know it's it's just it's funny because of the way it's performed and if you're seeing this film for the first time it's like kind of purely comic if you've seen it before and you know what the thing is it's you know it's at a different level and i actually was curious because i i know that there obviously there's always changes from from the initial screenplay but i was curious like what mcdonough had built into the screenplay as far as this particular revelation and originally like that line is well we're here because you killed that kid (laughs) and like it was just like right right out there at the beginning and like it would have been such a different film if if they had gone with that way like just the way it unfolds it makes the moment itself like when we see i i almost wish we didn't actually see the moment in flashback and that's like not just like sort of my my aversion to the the gore the violence of it i just like i kind of like it being in the background as this specter and i think we maybe get let in on it a little early but maybe that's just my reaction to that opening line kind of informing my reading because i i really like that that opening scene between the two of them and how loaded it is There's a lot of power dynamic in that exchange as well. You know, there's a lot of uh, throughout the film, you you can always tell who's in charge. You can always tell who the veteran is, not because of their age, but because Ken is so economical about pulling the leash with words like that. And if he'd spelled it out in that moment, especially, you know, in front of the the hotel clerk, it would have felt like too much. But as it was, it kind of feels like He's probably been saying something to that effect this entire trip, just, you know, why or because of the thing or even just like raising an eyebrow at him. And the fact that Ray is just so instantly crushed and the wording of, you know, why did you have you have to bring that up when he had we didn't <laughs> say anything. He just said, you know, because of the thing or whatever. Uh, I think it's a nice little character detail. Just that specific element, the little kid angle is so fascinating the the way it kind of appears and and manifests in the film and then finally in this supremely ironic ending you know in terms of just the seriousness with which it's taken which is significant at times this is something that 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 does weigh on the consciousness of uh, consciences of these these characters but then you get to the very end and it's like (laughs) You know, with Ray Fine's character having to follow through on his moral code, not realizing that the uh, that the person he has accidentally killed is not, in fact, a little kid. That's pretty delicious. And it's all sort of planted very elegantly. I mean, that's the thing about this movie. You know, it may be a first time film and it's certainly well crafted, but like the level of craft on the writing end of things is so polished and so pure and the way in which the second act takes off with the scene in the park or the, the alcove again <laughs> or wherever the park <laughs> um, the way that kind of that whole thing takes off and moves the movie in a different direction you just you feel like that mastery of structure you know the ability to kind of like cut from one you know to link you know there are a lot of really interesting transitional moments in the film it's just it's just there's the crispness of it is what gets you i mean that's and that's the thing I mean, you know, when you talk about films post Pulp Fiction that were missing, it was all it was all because they were about attitude. 
in, in dialogue, dialogue that it wasn't as witty, but it was like, it was the replacement, it, it was all the attitude, but without the investment in, in character, the investment in evocative detail, the structure, direction. I mean, there's so many elements that go into it, so many elements that only a an actually talented person could pull off that are present in, in Bruges. I think something that allows McDonough to make this kind of movie where, first of all, you know, the the key, the central information isn't revealed until late into the runtime. And it's composed of almost these listless vignettes of one thing happening and then another thing happening, all focusing on the central relationship, of course. What allows him to do that, in my opinion, is his background in the stage. He comes from a world where words are everything, and you can really feel it in several of his screenplays, this one especially, where there is a sense of not just rhythm to everything that's said, but meaning, where snappy and even repetitive dialogue is not just a flourish, the way it is in a lot of films that seek to impersonate the likes of, you know, Tarantino or Guy Ritchie. But in a Martin McDonough film, you have this very theatrical sense, even in his more subdued moments, where the text is always about to say something. It's always bursting with some kind of meaning just beneath the surface. And it it has almost this musical quality to it that's so subtle that you don't even notice it until you go back and watch it and you realize, like we've been saying, you know, the character is making reference to the child being killed but not coming right out and saying it. Sudan, are you familiar with his plays at all? Have you read any of them or seen any of them staged? I haven't been lucky enough to see any of them on stage, but a while ago I did read The Lieutenant of Inishmore or The Lieutenant of Inishmore, but it, it, it's been a while since I've read it. I, I've never read any of his plays either. I've just read about them. And they sound much darker than his films, which is saying something. You know, I assume that the same form of humor comes out because people write about it very frequently when they're writing about his plays. But it, it really seems like the plays go a lot deeper into torture, for instance, in uh, like fraught family relationships where people tear at each other and damage each other and then ultimately, in many cases, kill each other. And I can't help but wonder if he carried over some of the stage instincts, particularly what you're talking about in terms of dialogue, but, you know, toned it down or heightened it up a little bit for the screen. At the same time, like maybe this is a good time to talk about how this is like a very cinematic movie. Like, like it is not, it does not feel like a stage play brought to life in a visual sense. You know, like the, the dialogue as we've been talking about has that feeling, but like you can kind of, at least I feel maybe I'm projecting, but like, I, I feel like there's an excitement of being able to put this on, on film and being able to like use the tools of cinema, the different like ways light are used to, to uh, in, in this movie is just like, like super cool, <laughs> like, like you know, it's it just neat, you know, to see the the way he sets up certain shots and uses lights into them, you know, it's camera angles, and obviously we've talked about the setting, and you know, you can feel him kind of wallowing in the setting visually. I think he has a way of really blending the thing I was talking about earlier, the you know, the rhythms of dialogue with the rhythms of film editing as well, mm. because you know, on on stage you can't do something like you know, show a close-up of a character or show a close-up of architecture. So he knows that he can, you know, change the meaning of the text based on what he's putting on display on screen. 
If I could just really quickly bring up a movie that hasn't come out yet for the public, The Whale by Darren Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but it's one where you sort of see the opposite happen, where the staginess of the dialogue feels limited by the fact that it is a play first and foremost, and it isn't necessarily translated cinematically the way McDonough might translate his work or may even write it primarily as something that is meant to be both heard and seen at the same time. Well, speaking of the the way this film uses light and just the idea of, of something meant to be heard and seen, the, the whole thing kind of goes like down its own navel just a little bit when we wind up on the set of a film. You know, mm-hmm. the parallel between this story and the film being shot kind of stretches throughout the entire story. But we end up with our final conflict in the middle of a scene where a film is being shot outdoors with the all of the lights around just kind of like changing the, the physical dynamic and the sense of it all kind of like playing out for an audience that happens to be dressed up like characters from from Bosch paintings, which is that that part's a little on the nose for me, but it certainly <laughs> does make for some interesting and some quite frankly, Neil Jordan-esque kind of visuals. Well, it's, it's so elegant, though, like the, just the way the, the, it's so clever, the way that's introduced though because the the end of the film you if i recall you really just see the lights it's the lights that you that she recognizes oh those are f- from the film set like that's it like it's not like it's not like he's giving you a full angle of the film being made in the background while all of this action is happening in the foreground it's just enough to give you that little visual cue that that's where you might be at and then it, it, which then of course sets up you know the fact that more than one uh person is going to get uh, ends up getting killed in the shootout i think that's very cl- that's just clever uh, to me um and also of course re- you're reflexive of course to to uh to have a a you know to shoot a movie about <laughs> about bruges you know being set within another movie about uh, that's that's in bruges that's all very clever i mean and, and i think this kind of and it, it will bring this up again when we talk about the new film, but I think there is a little bit of hot shottery here. There's a little bit of like first time I'm going to make a big splash kind of bravado muscularity to this film. I mean, I, I don't want to call it immature necessarily because I, <laughs> I, I really think it's, I mean, I think this film is a, is a tremendous amount of fun, but, but I think in a lot of ways there is um, a anxiousness to make an impression to do something clever I mean, it, I mean, it, it's seven. I mean, Seven Psychopaths was that times a thousand. I mean, it was like <laughs> you like to. to I mean, because that that film is, yeah, you know, a film I like, but that is that is, I mean, beyond clever for its own sake. I mean, the the bratty kind of thing that you're talking about, the the sort of mocking thing, is kind of why I wanted to emphasize the punk point in the the keynote because it explained so much to me. Like, it does seem a little uh, bratty to mock the entire idea of filmmaking, which, you know, he kind of does with all of the stuff about uh, how much this film that's being made kind of sucks. You know, you have... You've got Jimmy, uh, the the actor uh, played by Jordan Prentice, who keeps showing up. He's a little person um, being shot in in the film because it's a dream story, which just really takes me back to Peter Dinklage's first movie, Living in Oblivion, where uh-huh. he's on the set of a movie because he's a little person and it's a dream sequence. And he just rips the director a new one for the, the complete BS of you know, having a little person in your movie because you're shooting a dream sequence and what he's, a cliche it is. Not a, he is he is not a, a cocaine-fueled racist, however, in <laughs> Living in Oblivion. <laughs> this is true, whereas whereas Jimmy is. Also ketamine. 
Also ketamine. Yeah. <laughs> he comes straight out and it's just like, well, I was on a lot of horse tranquilizers the other day. I didn't, I wasn't going to say hi to anybody except maybe a horse. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's a lot uh, of kind of self mockery in the very idea of that film, that film with, uh, you know, the, the female lead being somebody who's just dealing drugs to the, uh, the people on set, you know, the, the pretentiousness of this movie that is so very clearly some kind Kind of Euro trash uh, BS, I think, is what's what Jimmy calls it, and we're kind of right back to the the you know the brattiness or the the punk nature. He's he's kind of biting the hand that feeds him. Like he's making his first movie, but he's also making fun of movies at the same time. I should note just for a certain niche of listeners that that uh, you're mentioning the soundtrack, maybe not being all that punkish, but the soundtrack has uh, a track by the Walkman on it, so uh, which is. A freaking great band. <laughs> so I just had to bring that up. Uh, just for all, all you Walkman fans out there. Fair enough. Uh, so one of the things that you've written about most for me uh, in the past has been religion, you know, religious iconography, like religious uh, aspects to like everything from Star Wars to uh, Evangelion. And here it it's just it seems reflexive for McDonough to take a dig at the Catholic Church in everything that he he writes. I think it's maybe very hard to make any kind of remotely modern Irish story without in some way addressing Catholicism and or uh, the troubles like, you know, politics and religion and, and how they're intertwined is just such a part of an Irish story. But I'm, I'm curious what you make of it here as it kind of ties into like all of the medieval art and, and the Christ figures and, you know, what Ray does and doesn't like in this art. Like, does anything particular stand out about like the religious or, or ethos backing of this movie? I think it introduces, again, this constant sense of, you know, something I'm sure we associate with Catholicism quite a lot, which is guilt. But at the same time, Ray seems to be trying almost extra hard not to think about it. And when you when you introduce, you know, paintings by Hieronymus Bosch, which are so overtly about judgment in this very hellish and violent sense, uh, you are introducing a potential ending for Ray, that this is all going to end horribly, but it's something he refuses to recognize. And I think that's what becomes so interesting about putting him in a setting like Bruges, where you have all this Catholic imagery around him and these reminders of guilt and of judgment. But a lot of the time, he seems to choose to not see it. And that for me has always been a question of whether he's incapable of looking past, you know, the mere flourishes of this city, or he just doesn't want to, because, you know, he obviously feels this deep down to the point that he's ready to take his life. So I think by surrounding him with all this religious imagery, you put him in this interesting space of, you know, having to reckon with what he's done, but also the story playing out the way it does depends on his refusal to reckon for as long as he can. So Bruges is maybe the most interesting place that you could set something like this. It's basically like setting the entire movie in a Catholic church, which also seems to be where, you know, his major sin takes place to begin with. And so by, you know, by setting the movie where these religious symbols are unavoidable, you end up commenting on Ray himself in a really interesting way. And I think something that McDonough 
really seems to understand about Colin Farrell that I think a lot of Hollywood directors don't is that he works best as an actor when he's kind of a doofus, <laughs> which, <laughs> which does lead me to believe that maybe Ray just isn't making these connections, even though, you know, his own guilt is always on his mind. But that's always been a bit of a question mark for me. Does he not see it or does he refuse to see it? I think it's kind of a, a, a fine line. I, I mean, I, I think it could potentially be both things. He comes across like his his dismissiveness, particularly in the beginning, in that in that shot where they're in the gondola together and he's saying, you know, do you you like all this? And by all this he means going around looking at things. He's the way he's hunched up, so he's just this sort of necklace lump where he feels like he's being physically oppressed by the presence of architecture and the fact that somebody's looking at it. That suggests to me that he's kind of a pretty shallow man, but maybe he really is a shallow man who is just intimidated by anything larger than him, whether that's you know, belief or faith or history or, uh, you know, intellectualism, people caring about stuff. He's only really happy when he's dealing with very, very small things that are right in front of him. And I think you're right that it's a kind of a big open question of whether, you know, he's he's too dumb to take in things intellectually or he's forcing himself to have that perspective because if he had any larger perspective, it would crush him. But I, I think it is crushing him at the same time. And I wonder if the real tragedy is that he isn't opening his eyes to answers that might be right in front of him, whether it comes to you know penance or salvation. I wonder if the city of Bruges might be able to offer him you know, the, the spiritual way out that he's looking for. But by constantly averting his eyes, the only solution he can seem to find is putting a gun to his head. I will see him more as a child, <laughs> this being almost like a childlike response to the city, like being dragged through this boring tourist town by your parents. There's kind of that vibe to it. And I think there's a, there's a way that, that Ken regards him as childlike or, or, or certainly young, very young, and a, a sense of kind of protectiveness that comes into play at a certain point of, of just wanting to prevent harm from from coming to him uh, seeing him as as vulnerable and not uh, which is an odd thing to th- see as to it's an odd way to think a, about someone who is a, a hitman who likes you know the prostitutes and cocaine or whatever it is that raise into but like i think there's like, like an essential kind of childlike innocence to ray uh that the film sort of plays on and, and some of it has to do with his that kind of just base revulsion to a city that he just simply finds boring. Yeah, he does feel a little bit like somebody whose mom has uh, dragged him on a shopping trip and he doesn't want to look at dresses. <laughs> I just love that it's like, <laughs> that it's his boss's idea of, uh, it's Harry's idea of a nice last place to be, you know, a nice, nice last couple of days in this beautiful place that, uh, that uh, in fact, uh, Ray absolutely detests. It's it's his version of telling him about the rabbits, George, before, uh, you know, shooting him in the head, <laughs> uh, except he doesn't want to hear about any damn rabbits and doesn't understand why anyone would want to hear about them. Before we move on from the ideas of Catholicism in this film, uh, I, I think we have to note uh, the purgatory el- element uh, mm. here uh, as, as well, which comes up, uh, I think, for the first time when uh, they're, they're looking at that Bosch painting. And like, I think you can kind of, or at least I it kind of extrapolated that to the whole film kind of thinking of their time in Bruges and Bruges itself 
as a sort of purgatory for Ray, you know, and I mean, purgatory is a very complicated concept, and I'm not a good enough former Catholic to get into the nuance. But it is sort of a state, you know, that is, uh, as kind of calls it the in-betweeny one of uh, where uh, souls can be cleansed before going to heaven. So it kind of feels like this is like Ray's opportunity to kind of face accept what he did, maybe atone for what he did. And he's he's resistant to it because, of course, he is because he's a child and for all the other reasons we've, we've discussed. But I think how boring and how uninteresting he finds Bruges, it kind of parallels that idea of purgatory and of just being stuck in this in-betweeny place that is, you know, neither high nor low, neither good nor bad. It's just like, you're just kind of there. Oh, it's kind of that waiting for Godoy quality to the first third or whatever the, of the of the movie the other thing too and this is something that tarantino really got in pulp fiction is that if you think about the life of of a, of a hitman you know it, it is it is a whole lot of boredom fo- followed by you know with just little punctuated by terror i mean it's almost like it's that way it's that way in war as well you hear people of people who are soldiers in war who are who are accustomed to long days of unbroken dull tension punctuated by absolute uh, absolute uh, terror and it's kind of like it is that feel feeling too i mean there's just there are just going to be all of these spaces in between actions and both tarantino and mcdonough are curious about what goes on in those spaces what how do they fill that void uh, what does it get filled with what, what kind of conversation does it get filled with what kind of thoughts fill that void We've talked quite a lot about Ray, but we've really kind of glossed over Ken, who is as much, if not more, of the story here. But, you know, the real story is their relationship. I think what maybe feels like the biggest question mark in this movie is what exactly that relationship is. I vaguely feel like the first time I saw it, I remembered there being some kind of, like, clarification about, like, some kind of, of family thing. And, you know, I, it would just make so much sense if he was like, you know, his nephew or something like that. Where do you see this relationship coming from? Like, he refers to him as the boy. He does treat him like a kid. He definitely feels responsibility for trying to bring him into this operation, bring him into this job, send him on this mission, and then everything that that came out as a result. What, what do you make of this relationship? Why are they so close? It's a good question. And I don't know that I ever like teased it out because like it seems like they're partners who have been working together forever, but then we learned that this was Ray's first job. So they would have had to have some sort of prior relationship to it. And there is a sort of paternal nature to Ken towards Ray that feels like it has to extend outside of this job, or at least like, I I think probably my guess would be like, he is responsible for bringing Ray into this, this lifestyle. I don't know that I necessarily need to know more specifics of their relationship beyond that. I don't necessarily need to know their, their origin story. But I think just the quality of that relationship is such that Ken obviously feels some sort of responsibility for Ray beyond like this current scenario they're in. I mean, there, there's that, that familiar banter that certainly suggests they know each other reasonably well going in but i think there's kind of also a degree to which 
Ken just simply recognizes, sees himself in Ray. It's kind of like that, that that Neil Young song, "Old Man." You know, <laughs> "Old Man, take a, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you." It's kind of that sort of thing, a dynamic between them, where it's like where I think Ken might recognize, see in Ray his own youthful brashness, and and may have may has been doing this long enough uh, to have grown up a little bit and, and and gotten a little bit wiser and uh might be a little bit more patient with a person like that than others might be certainly eddie <laughs> i think for me the relationship between ken and ray is sort of unlocked by a secondary question which is who is harry and mm. i know that harry is their boss but uh harry seems to represent almost this comedically twisted version of the god of the old testament who mm. lives by this very very strict moral code to the point that he ends up blowing his own brains out without really looking into things <laughs> which then which then you know sort of makes Ken and Ray it makes their story feel similar to the story of Abraham and Isaac but that's getting into then you know like very very direct biblical parallels which you know was probably intentional on McDonough's part but I think rather than looking at it strictly biblically I think using that as just sort of a way in it does become this um, this father-son dynamic where it seems like this father figure kind of has to come to terms with the fact that his son or whatever you want to call him is kind of a screw-up. And at what point do you just accept that? At what point do you just let it lie and say, well, this is just who he's always going to be, so we may as well kill him. But of course, he chooses to go the opposite way and says, no, you know, the the boy can change which is very much the opposite of what Abraham decides to do. <laughs> so I think, if anything, that's where McDonough's religious commentary comes in, uh, almost as if to say, hey, you know that Bible story we all know? <laughs> it sucks. Let's do something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially at the point, I, I, having grown up in a uh, religious environment, I remember that story very well. I don't remember it ending with uh, God showing up and trying to claim the son himself, mostly by, <laughs> by chasing him through the, the streets of, you know, all Israel with a, with a gun. To be fair, that would be a much funnier story. <laughs> that would be that would be a pretty impressive biblical story, especially I would, the, the I would, gun part. I would convert immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what ancient Aramaic for gun even is. <laughs> I feel like there's a ton more to say about Rain Ken's relationship and uh, the the fraught dynamics between them and how how things change and the urge towards self sacrifice and just all, all sorts of stuff that's going on there. But so much of it is stuff that we're going to be able to touch on in the next part of this discussion when we talk about connections between this film and, and Banshees of Inisherin. So I'm going to let all that go for the moment and just uh, point out that this is a movie with uh, an ambiguous ending. You know, we we start in the middle of the story and we leave before it's quite completely wrapped with this open question of, uh, you know, survival or not survival with this, this narration saying, boy, I, I hope that this happens in the future. But like ambiguous endings are a, a pretty common device in movies, but I'm not sure I've ever seen one that feels quite so. What do you want to have happen here? You know, choose your own adventure. Like, would it would it be more just? Would it be more satisfying? Would it be more fair if this man lives or dies? And I'm curious just how everybody feels about this ending. I feel like he dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't I, think there's any to me that's not that ambiguous. It's like it's like, you know, I mean this isn't the Sopranos or whatever. I think you're like, you know, well then he dies there too, but I think he dies here, yes. 
wait, wait, wait. No, no, we're not going to litigate The Sopranos. But <laughs> come on, let's do it. Let's talk. Let's let's just sidetrack this thing for an hour. But I, I I do agree with you in the sense of like I don't feel like it's that ambiguous. But I do think that McDonough is kind of like grafting a sense of ambiguity onto it, maybe as part of that attitude that we were talking about uh, earlier, just because like. Yeah, having a having an ambiguous ending would be like a cool thing to have, but this isn't like he he's gut shot like four times. <laughs> like you see half his abdomen fly out behind him. Like he's not gonna survive, right? Uh, the inside of the ambulance, the, the the top of the ambulance is all bright white. You know, I think there's kind of a heavenly suggestion that he's dead. He is dead. Oh goodness. I- I like the ambiguity of some of his final lines, like, I really, really hoped I wouldn't die, because the tenses of it become a bit mm. confusing. Mm. It's like, yeah. where where is this narration coming from? And it only really makes sense if it is from some other, you know, spiritual realm like purgatory. So in a weird mm. way, it does kind of make sense that it is as ambiguous and answerless as it is. I like thinking of it as narration from purgatory that kind of slots in nicely to my conception of of the film. Yeah, that's a a nice thematic ad. I think I'm I'm just going to walk away and leave that one lie. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this discussion on the, the the ending of the movie, the beginning of the movie, which is in the middle of the movie, the middle of the movie, which is kind of the end of the movie. <laughs> this is just a very interestingly and constructed piece. And also the end of the piece. Sopranos, if you want to have some feet. <laughs> Yes, let's, let's, let's definitely do a, uh, a bonus episode for the Patreon about the end of The Sopranos <laughs> and how Scott feels about it, just ranting for an hour. Uh, you can talk to us about anything else in the world of film or TV or The Sopranos if you like. Just email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share responses with us and with other listeners. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in just a moment with some feedback. For feedback. But before we get into it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the next picture show's mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. They've recently talked about James Gray's coming of age film Armageddon Time and Ruben Oslin's three act bleak comedy Triangle of Sadness, alongside the usual discussion lists and personal film reports. And if you're going to be in New York on January 14th, we'd recommend attending the show's annual rap party. Take it from me, it is always a blast. Tickets are on sale now at filmspotting.net. Here's a response we got to our discussion on tar from Ed in Philadelphia. Um, Scott, could you read this one for us? Uh, sure. Ed writes, it seems that the theme of your tar episode was, quote, I actually read it this way. So allow me to add to the pile. You commented on Lydia's return to her home watching her analog Leonard Bernstein TikToks. <laughs> but I think <laughs> I understood the intent of her reaction quite differently. While I can't swear to it without a rewatch of the film, I thought we were meant to understand that her comments in the interview at the start of the film was subconscious plagiarism of the Bernstein broadcasts of her youth, and that her emotional reaction to hearing them from Lenny's mouth was her realization of this. This would parallel another early scene with her mentor, where, as she's talking about her latest composing effort, he comments about another composer has, who had engaged in plagiarism. While this certainly is not part of her downfall in the public sphere, I think it's an important part of her reaction to it, her realization of her own, quote-unquote, fraudulence. That's too strong, but at least her sense of inadequacy. 
Unrelated side note, well, I don't know if it played into Field's decision not to subtitle uh, Lydia's podium banter, and much of it is indeed in German. I would note that there is also sprinklings of Italian in there because while I don't speak German, I've played music long enough that some of the musical terms she was referring to broke through, which, largely speaking, are Italian in their nature. I wonder if it would have been too confusing to subtitle the German and Italian at the same time. Pure speculation, but I figured I would offer it. Uh, Sidon, have you seen Tar? I have. I am a big Tar head. <laughs> a big Tar head. That, that sounds much more like a sports declaration than a, a movie declaration. What, we're, what it, we're Tar struck here. Yeah, we are Tar struck. God, we, we, we were thinking of so many, like, or maybe I was thinking of so many Tar puns for the name of the, uh, of the episode. Tar Wars. Uh, oh, no. Battle, battle Beyond the Tars. Anyway, go ahead. You're just you're making me progressively sadder and sadder. Although I guess none of these terrible things were enacted, so uh, no, no, I feel that, okay that's about why we that. have Genevieve to to keep my bad ideas from seeing the light of day. <laughs> so, now, what's your brief take on Tar, and uh, do you have any thought here about the how the Bernstein of it all works in per this letter? Uh, well, I love Tar as sort of an analysis of power in the world of art and academia. And while I don't quite remember these Bernstein specifics because it's seen, it's been a while since I've seen the film, I do find the lack of subtitling of the German and supposed Italian quite interesting because I feel like to, at least to people who don't speak German and or Italian, it sort of says that this is, you know, to her, speaking the language of the podium is almost like a language beyond words. So I think at least... I actually read it this way. Uh, to me, it's it's about, you know, the language of art that kind of lives in her bones and under her skin in a way. But, you know, as far as subtitling two languages concurrently, I don't think that's a difficult thing to do. You know, I've seen movies use different fonts, different colors. I wish more movies actually did it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think a lot of that would then probably come down to intent, uh, which we can't really discern without asking the director himself. I agree with you that more films should make more distinction. I'm I'm really looking at you, Drive My Car, and the <laughs> the various scenes that are conducted in a whole bunch of different languages, which is not necessarily clear if you're an, an English speaker just reading the English subtitles. But yeah, regardless, uh, if you if you don't make the distinction between this part is an Italian music term versus this is a, a German explanation or declaration, I, I don't think that the subtitling would be that hard. I'm in the same place though, as as far as the comparing the exact text of the Leonard Bernstein recordings to the exact text she says at the beginning. I'd need to see the film again, and uh, I don't want to see the film again so closely uh, to to the last viewing, which is something we talked about a bunch. I kind of hope that we do get screeners of it as we're moving into like holiday recap, like awards making season, because it would be interesting to just compare those sequences specifically and and see how they match up. I'd love to see it projected again, though. It's it's such a it's such a big. You know, uh, it's such an event kind of a movie for me. But I, I you know, the, the, just one br- one little brief note I'd say about the subtitling is I I just don't think we learn anything from it. Like, what do we need to know from that from from the German and Italian dialogue that said in that scene that w- that that isn't being conveyed already without us knowing what specifically is being said? I think that would be the que- I think I think it's just a, a smart, strong artistic choice of, of which the film tar has many many many. I think. 
think it's strong. Uh, I just I think it's a lot to ask people in such a verbal movie to sit still for long periods of time where we just have no idea what the characters say. Good. Yeah, ask them. <laughs> ask people a lot. Not enough. To, not enough movies ask stuff of their of their viewers. They just they just give them things. I, I mean, we we talked in that discussion about how this film also like makes the audience sit through the entirety of the credits before showing them the movie. <laughs> That's right. You know, it, like it, it's definitely uh, yeah, it's definitely like leading viewers by the nose uh, to to a pretty big extent. So you know, respect. Yeah, it's 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 a big ask. It's a big ask in a film with a lot of big asks and and bold statements, and what you make of any given one of them, I think, is up to you. Uh, we appreciate in general when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we will see our dissatisfied duo and their director reuniting for the Banshees of Inishirin, which jumps far back in time and laterally in space, but gives us a similar look at the man of thoughts versus man of action split and a similarly dark look at death and consequences. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us on nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, we really hope feckin' swans are your feckin' thing. How could they feckin' not be, eh? That I might one day rule I saw the danger and I passed Along the enchanted way And I said let grief Be a fallen leaf At the dawning of